I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 30th, 2019. Coming up, we'll talk with Ruth Kassinger, the author of the new book, Slime, How Algae Created Us, Plague Us, and Just Might Save Us. The technology for producing fuel from algae, the big question is whether it can be produced at a cost that is competitive with fossil fuel. And I happen to think that it can. Today's show is an interview with the author of a book that has received wide praise this summer, a book called Slime. Kirkus Review writes, Who knew that the slimy green stuff we commonly encounter as seaweed and pond scum is a driving force behind all of life as we know it? Kirkus calls Ruth Kassinger's book on slime accessible and enthralling. Nature Science reports that Kassinger's book is a real pleasure, a book devoted to algae, of immense biological importance. Publishers Weekly writes that Kassinger turns an obscure subject into delightful reading. We'll go right into the interview with Ruth Kassinger next, but first we want you to know that Kassinger's publisher has kindly provided KGNU with a limited number of gift copies of Slime. You may get one of these by calling and pledging your support to KGNU at 303 449-4885 or going to kgnu.org to pledge securely online. Now let's go to Ruth Kassinger talking about her book, Slime, How Algae Created Us, Plague Us, and Just Might Save Us. I was actually researching another book about the history of conservatories. I was looking for the most modern conservatory that I could find. I went to visit a man who was growing algae in eight-foot by four-foot plastic panels. And the reason he was growing algae was to create a biofuel. Once I discovered what he was doing, then I was able to see that there were a lot of other uses of algae that were fascinating to me. You've somehow made this fascinating to me, too, and I wasn't expecting that. Starting with why algae is filled with slime, having to do with how it protects itself from UV rays while also getting energy from sunlight. Yes, algae were the first photosynthesizers on Earth. While floating in the water 3.7 billion years ago, they needed to protect themselves from the UV light that was pouring down on Earth at that time. There was no ozone layer. And so if they hadn't formed a slimy exterior, which is actually called a phycocolloid, they would have had their DNA fried and would not have been able to reproduce. That would have been bad for the algae. It would have been bad for the algae and it would have been bad for us because without algae, we wouldn't be here. That's a pretty big statement, Ruth Kassinger, about this stuff that you call slime, that we're here because of algae, because of slime? Yes, and I have to say, you know, we should really not call them slime. The slime is just their exterior covering, and it's one of the features about algae and seaweeds, because seaweeds are also algae, that most people are aware of without knowing all the rest of the wonderful things about them. But it is true that without algae, we wouldn't be here. 
For one thing, algae created all the oxygen the Earth first had, and without the oxygen, there would have been no animals who were able to breathe it. Breathing or otherwise taking it in is very important because oxygen is just full of energy, and burning oxygen gave life, it was almost a superpower. The fact that algae have a waste product of oxygen is critical. Oxygen is a waste product. The algae is giving it off as part of growing and making itself work. And even today, algae is, from what you say, one of the main sources of oxygen on Earth in the oceans. What is it, 300 feet down, the ocean is thick with algae? It's actually, there's a 600-foot layer oh, it's 600. of algae it's 600. on our oceans. Yeah. If you were to swallow a single drop of ocean water, it is very likely that you would swallow thousands of tiny algae. They're called Prochlorococcus. And we didn't even know that these algae existed until 1988. There are more algae in the oceans than there are stars in the universe. Algae is everywhere. That is amazing that there's so much in that 600 feet of ocean. And when I think of a sea green ocean now, I'm going to assume that some of that green comes from the fact it's so full of these teeny tiny algae. You're right. Yeah, those are some of the details I found in your book. Ruth Cassinger, it seemed to me your book was like going to a shopping mall that's all about one thing, really. And the theme of this shopping mall is algae. I learned a lot about the creation of the world. And I also learned about different ways that algae and its kind of its grandchildren have helped people in all kinds of ways and still can. It did not occur to me that algae in the form of seaweed probably helps humans evolve their big brains. Yes, it's an interesting question that paleoanthropologists have been considering for a long time, and it's not a question that's been put to rest entirely for certain. But the question is, what was it about one line of primates that millions of years ago led to us and did not lead to the apes and chimps and orangutans that exist today along with us. One of the hypotheses is that about nine million years ago, when the environment was changing in Africa, the forests were drying up. A kind of primitive chimp moved out of the trees and into the growing savannas. And the savannas were punctuated by lakes and ponds and streams in the African Rift Valley. Those primates found a new source of food, and that food was the creatures that they could find in the marshlands. Some of those creatures, like frogs, turtles, little fish that would swim around in the shallows, were eating and getting their nourishment through eating algae. And algae has some wonderful components, iodine and omega-3 oils. Both of those are very important for the expansion of the brain. It's the hypothesis now that those creatures who moved out of the trees and moved into the marshlands were getting more of crucial nutrients. And they went on to live by the seashore and the shorelines and continued to get more of those nutrients. In response, their brains grew because they were more able to use the nutrients. 
Well, Ruth Kassinger, you're saying this led me to want to eat more foods with seaweed in them, kelp or nori or kombu. I also appreciated your explanation of how fish also are high in iodine, somewhat in the same process that seaweed is, and that in places where people don't eat enough fish or seaweed, they can be prone to brain stunting diseases. Yes. Today, with iodized salt and other staples, we've lost our knowledge that iodine deficiency has been a huge problem for generations of people who lived far from the shorelines. When our ancestors moved out of Africa, they moved out along the shorelines, tracing the shorelines from Africa to East Asia. When we became numerous enough that we moved inland, the beginnings of a problem developed. There is not enough iodine in vegetables on land to fully exploit the capabilities of our human brains. Iodine deficiency is still a big problem around the world in, let's say, Central Africa or in mountainous regions, or even, it used to be at least, even in the northern tier of the Midwest where glaciers had scoured the land and scoured out the remaining iodine. Iodine is absolutely crucial to our health. And algae have helped humans have enough of it. Yes, and it still does. And algae contains omega-3 oils. They're sort of like the bricks of our brain. And omega-3 oils are crucial to our mental health. You mentioned a number of ways that algae, in addition to giving us oxygen and leading to plants such as seaweed, which are so important, Algae also can have roles in helping us keep the environment clean today as fuel and also as a very good pollution scrubber. Yes, there's a company in Florida called Hydromentia. The company has invented an algae turf scrubber. Basically what this is, is a very large, maybe four acre concrete pad. Over the pad, comes water running off the land, let's say from canals that gather irrigation water and rainwater that's been polluted by fertilizers. When that water runs across these giant concrete pads, which are sloped very slightly with the bottom edge running toward the ocean, algae grow on the pad, a certain kind of algae, which looks like tiny threads. It's called turf algae. And the turf algae take up the nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus in particular, that pollute our waters and cause algae blooms and dead zones. And then the managers of this giant concrete pad scrape off the turf algae every so often, maybe as much as once a week, and release the turf algae from the concrete and let new turf algae grow. And then they can use the turf algae they've scraped off as a fertilizer or recycle it into other products or simply just get rid of it with all of its heavy load of nitrogen and phosphorus. Well, in some places, plants and industries need more nitrogen and phosphorus. So it does seem like a really good organic compostable fertilizer, if you will, for other places. It's really like recycling fertilizers. And somehow I picture this huge several-acre area that's covered with what looks like green smurf hair. <laughs> that's a pretty good description of what it looks like. It's also very beautiful because it acts like a wildlife refuge. When I 
went down to see some of these in action, there were all kinds of beautiful birds walking on the algae turf scrubber, looking for the little zooplankton and tiny crustaceans that hide in the algae turf. Just like our ancestors long ago used to get the snails from sort of seaweeds and it helped their brains grow, it sounds like it helps the wildlife there in Florida. When nitrogen and phosphorus are too high, it's so damaging to the environment. And to clean it up, it just sounds like such a bright spot in the world that this got figured out in Florida. It is a bright spot. There's probably a lot more potential for it than has already been used, scientists are hoping. The algae turf scrubbers will be in greater use. Some of it will come if we have good regulations on how much fertilizer can be released into the water. When the regulations are stringent, then it becomes economically more interesting to build the algae turf scrubbers. You would like to see more of them, and I think I would too. I can see them at golf courses. I can see them at farms in the Midwest. It just seems like such a neat solution that is a recyclable solution. And then another one that you gave like this in your compendium of basically different great ideas to shop for involving algae. In Baltimore, where a city person has these big tanks, he's raising very tasty fish. For the restaurants there, they're much more clean, they're much less infected with things, they're much more healthy food than regularly farmed fish. And it's all happening in a city. Right. It's happening in downtown Baltimore. I got interested in this because the professor from the University of Maryland grows algae indoors in the basement of a Baltimore office building. You see, that is such a small space. And when you were talking about the turf scrubbers in Florida, you're talking about several acres. But here is this guy in the city in Baltimore, Maryland, who's growing fish in his basement. Yes, he's a professor of biotechnology in Baltimore. What he has is, in essence, a fish farm in the basement of an office building. He has what looked to me like above-ground outdoor swimming pools. In those swimming pools are thousands of fish. They can be Branzino, for example. They swim around and around in a current in just plain city water with certain additives, like sodium chloride, of course. To make it be salty, because Branzino is a sea fish. Right. These are all sea fish. So it's uh, created water, which is perfectly clean, And the fish waste is recycled, taken out of the water of these swimming pools. And the fish are fed with algae that is also grown in the basement under grow lights. And so you have a closed loop. There is no fish waste that gets into the outdoor waters. Algae is grown in a perfectly pure way. So the fish are extraordinarily healthy. This is the healthiest farm-raised fish I have ever heard of. Yes. It doesn't require antibiotics. It doesn't require them swimming in their own filthy waste. And it's in the city in swimming pools governed and kept clean by that little tiny one-celled creature called algae. Right. This is just amazing. And it's another one of those good ideas. Another one that you've mentioned is biofuels. We all know some things about ethanol from corn, but you think that ethanol from algae might be even better. There have been two ways 
that entrepreneurs have suggested that we might use algae for fuel. The first thing to remember when you think about algae fuel is that algae is grown on non-arable land. Oh, that means that it's grown on land that you can't farm for other crops? That's right. So it can be grown on desert land. It requires no fresh water because algae can grow in brackish water or salty water, seawater. Also, algae, unlike humans, where we store our extra energy as solid fat, algae store their extra energy as lipids, which is another word for oils. Some algae are extraordinarily good at storing oils and will store up to 85% of their volume as oils. On us, we store it as a solid fat, like you'd see on a slab of meat, for instance. That's our way of storing it. But algae, they store it as a liquid oil, such as what you might find in olive oil. That's correct. There's one very large group of entrepreneurs focused on turning that algae oil into gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. Another entrepreneur at a company called Algenol was focused on bioengineering cyanobacteria, which are the simplest one-celled algae. What they did was incorporate some yeast genes into the cyanobacteria, which made them produce ethanol. And they actually leaked ethanol into the water in which they were growing. Now, ethanol, as we all know just by filling up our cars at the filling station, is a component these days of the gasoline we put in our cars. 10% of the gasoline in our cars is ethanol. So ethanol is something you can burn. The company Algenol went out of business just a couple of years ago, but both ethanol and oil produced by algae that can be refined into gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. Both of those kinds of fuel have been stymied by the fall in the price of fossil fuels ever since the United States became quite proficient at fracking and began to produce more oil, driving the price down. But the technology for producing fuel from algae is there. It can definitely be improved, but it's only been around for about 10 years. The big question is whether it can be produced at a cost that is competitive with fossil fuel. And I happen to think that it can and that we should be putting resources into developing that fuel. I can understand your desire to do that because algae, in addition to creating oxygen, pulls carbon dioxide out of the air. Yes, it does. This is how algae live. They photosynthesize, so they take carbon dioxide out of the air and put oxygen in the air. Of course, when we burn algae fuel, we're just returning that carbon dioxide into the air. But it is certainly a lot better than taking stored carbon that is locked up in fossil fuel and putting it into the air. Look at all of these good ideas you've discovered simply by being curious about algae. All of these possibilities that are waiting out there if we have the political and the technological will to make them cost-effective and competitive with some of the more polluting fuels such as the fossil fuels. I was sad to hear that in your book you end on a very cautionary note about what happens if there's not the political will. Without enough political will to approach these problems, algae 
can turn into a monster. Yes, well, we see this every day. We read about it in the newspapers. And if you live in Florida or Toledo or on the West Coast, you are probably painfully aware that too much algae is a bad thing. There are both harmful algae blooms, which are excessive growth of algae, that produce toxins. A phenomenon called red tide has been afflicting the west coast of Florida. And red tide is made of a cyanobacterium that produces a pretty powerful toxin. And a cyanobacterium is a form of algae. Right. It was the first of the algae to evolve. The red tide has killed millions of fish. It also is fairly harmful to human beings. If you are down in Florida and on the West Coast during a red tide event, you don't want to walk near the beach because the toxins in the air will irritate your lungs, give you a feeling of having asthma, and it also irritates your eyes. It's devastating for the fishing industry and for the tourism industry. But there's another kind of algae, perhaps ones that your listeners are more familiar with, which are green algae scums. Some of these are toxic, but many are just terribly unsightly and also are devastating for the tourism industry. And there's a third kind of problem that we face with too much algae, and that's the creation of dead zones. Dead zones are not primarily caused by algae, but here's how it works. There's a huge dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. There are no fish or crustaceans or any creatures that live in this area of water that is about the size of the state of Connecticut. The dead zone starts when farmers put excessive amounts of fertilizer on their land. The fertilizer is not taken up by the plants, but washes off into streams and other tributaries and ends up in the Mississippi River goes down the Mississippi River and into the Gulf of Mexico. This causes algae to grow, and you may not even see an algae bloom. It's just that there are way too many algae. But eventually, they eat up all this fertilizer, and they die. At that point, oxygen-using bacteria eat and decompose all the algae. The problem is those bacteria use up all the oxygen in the water, and that's what creates the dead zone. And so it's this terrible, vicious cycle that gets formed, and algae is a big part of it. Yes. You know, you end your book on such a worried note. After all of the optimism of all the potential ways that we have of using algae for the good of the earth and to help us, too, I, I was worried that you really do think that we're doomed. Oh, well, <laughs> um, we are certainly doomed if we don't do what we need to do about greenhouse gases. If we do nothing, and I'm hardly the first person to note this, the temperature on our planet is going to go way too high for us to thrive. Algae will help the planet ultimately long after we've gone because algae will still be taking carbon dioxide out of the air and turning it into more of itself and those little algal 
bodies will filter dye and filter down to the bottom of the ocean, taking their carbon with them. And so over long periods of time, algae will clean up the environment. But I suspect we will be long gone by the time algae scrub our atmosphere clean of the excessive amounts of carbon dioxide that we're putting into it. I can't help but wonder, since most of your book is so optimistic, Ruth Cassinger, your book about slime, whether you're being a little bit sneaky here, too, that perhaps you're reminding people of what kind of fate awaits unless we do use the good side of algae, and we do promote that and promote the technologies that are possible with this little tiny one-celled creature to turn things around. You gave so many examples of ways to do that. I think you're sneaky when you end so pessimistically. <laughs> I hope anyway. Well, maybe it's maybe it will be an inspiration to pull together our political will and do more about excessive greenhouse gases. And do more to help the kind of algae that helps us thrive. Yes, yes. There's really great potential there. Ruth Cassinger is the author of Slime, How Algae Created Us, Plague Us, and Just Might Save Us. We have a limited number of gift copies of Slime for listeners who call and pledge support to KGNU. Call to pledge your support at 303-449-4885 or pledge securely online at kgnu.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- 447 For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.